you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Someone is trying to teach me a lesson in futility. Why am I the only one who isn't killed? They will run you dizzy. They will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to. That's how the powerful keep their power. Don't you read the papers? The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Welcome to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It is my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. Of course, Dr. Jones is the editor-in-chief of Culture Wars magazine and the author of many books, including the soon-to-be-released Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. That's a release is imminent, isn't it? Yes, next month. Oh, great. Okay, so it's very close. Okay, well, tonight... um, Oh, you, uh, in the February edition of Culture Wars, you uh, penned this article, Logos and Comedy, How Joking About Life Turned Life into a Joke. And in the article, you focus on a millennial, as a case study, I guess you could say, a victim of our, uh, I guess, of our culture, and uh, several comedians. And in the article, you kind of contrast these comedians, particularly one comedian, comedian with other comedians that many people know of um so this article what um what's it all about well it's about the millennial generation in a way it's about the movie joker which uh won uh it didn't didn't win best picture but uh joaquin phoenix won the uh, best actor award for winning it and I, I, I that's no coincidence because it was a terrible movie uh, and the terrible movie requires uh, enormous uh, acting ability to carry it off. And I think that's pretty much what happened. But you're talking about uh, uh, something that was probably aimed at the millennial generation because comedy has become uh, central to their existence. One of the things that uh, I discovered in doing this is that comedy is to the millennials what guitars were to the boomers. Uh, in our generation, people sang songs and bought albums and stuff like that. And uh, this generation goes to comedy clubs. Um, and there's probably a reason they go to comedy clubs. <clears throat> and that's pr- pretty much what I tried to cover in the in the article. I think the the uh, 
the movie Joker was a cynical exploitation of this group's, this demographic group's misery at this point in time. And uh, joking is is a cover for, for their misery. Uh, and uh, instead of having some sympathetic reading of it, we had the, the Jewish revolutionary spirit applied to this generation. And so uh, after uh, one random senseless act of violence after another in the film, uh, the Joker raises, stands up on a car and leads the gen this generation off into revolution, uh, the kind of fantasy of a generation that has been enslaved to debt and pornography. So that's, that's uh, uh, and, and the article <clears throat> is about how we got from there to here in terms of comedy. The, art, the movie itself is, is a remake of two Martin Scorsese movies. Uh, the most important one being the king of comedy and the other one being mean streets. So it's kind of like the mean streets atmosphere, uh, that kind of nihilistic atmosphere of the 1970s Times Square uh, with pornography and prostitution and violence superimposed over the comedy movie that Scorsese made about uh, 15 years later called the king of comedy, which starred uh, Jerry Lewis. So that, that's that's pretty much the the broad picture of, of what it, what it's about and what it tries to do and what it tries to explain. I guess the book, yeah, the article is sort of a partial review of, of Joker, and you contrast it. Um, the director, I think his name is Phillips, his treatment of uh, I guess uh, in Joker of the characters and how Scorsese handled his characters, and you uh, I guess you attribute that to Scorsese's. Uh, I guess Catholic upbringing. Well, the, uh, Scorsese's movie has a plot. It's it's his attempt to do some tar type of lighthearted comedy, which doesn't really fit. But there is a story there in which uh, they try to kidnap this uh, this loser uh, played by uh, uh, Robert De Niro, who wants to break into comedy, decides to kidnap the most the prominent, the most prominent comedian of his age and hold him ransom, go to jail and do a book and become famous and so on and so forth, which all of which happens. Uh, it gets transposed then into the new movie where something similar happens. They even have Robert De Niro making a, uh, a return here. He plays now the Jerry Lewis character, the, the big uh, comedic, the king of comedy. And uh, instead of being kidnapped, he's murdered uh, on stage in front of millions of viewers. So it's, I mean, Scorsese, Scorsese did have this residual, he always had this residual Catholic sense, which meant he had some type of residual moral sense. Uh, and what the new director does, who's Jewish, just erases that from the film. And all that's left is a kind of uh, nihilism, you know, random violence. Uh, uh, a Jewish revolutionary fantasy at the end, uh, pointless interaction. You can't tell whether it's real or not real. Uh, and the, I mean, this is also a sign of where comedy has gone over, over this period of time. The period of time that we're talking about uh, preceded uh, Kings of Comedy. King, the King of Comedy 
got made at the end of the great era of uh, the resurrection of comedy and, and the rise and fall of comedy, the rise and fall of the comedy clubs. And so you had uh, to take that back to the beginning. It was it was Lenny Bruce who basically recreated uh, the kind of Jewish revolutionary version of comedy, of stand-up comedy, back in the 50s. Now, in, in order to do that, uh, he had to be able to poke fun at what he considered sacred cows. Whether they were sacred cows or not is beside the point. He, he was supposed to, he was, uh, had to do that in order to do his kind of comedy, and uh, he did it, and he got arrested <laughs> for being obscene. Because that's the way he was he was uh, geared. That's the way he was geared. And so comedy developed along that line. And it became uh, more and more transgressive. And if, if the sacred cow uh, aligns with something that is gen- genuinely at odds with Logos, uh, then it needs to be ridiculed uh, for, in order to have a healthy society. Because society creates idols for itself, and at a certain point, the idols uh, become so out of touch with reality that they are threatening to choke off reality in discourse. And so there's a kind of catharsis if you can make fun of something, especially if you're the first one to say it, first one to say what everyone was thinking about how ridiculous this whole thing is, but no one had the intelligence or the courage to say it. And you were the first one, and everybody burst out laughing with a kind of cathartic release that, so now we can talk about this. Now we can talk about this. The only trouble was the sacred cow was exactly, pretty much a sacred cow. It was human sexuality uh, for Letty Bruce. And so what you saw there was not really, it wasn't that so much that it was funny, but you had a nerve, you have a nervous reaction when people get, uh, say something completely transgressive and outrageous, people will laugh because they don't know how else to react. That's the way they express shock. And Lenny Bruce would do this consistently. And, and the one, the one thing he could not stand was people, uh, not laughing or people ignoring him. And so he'd stand up there and he'd start into a comedy routine and got nowhere. And then at this point he'd panic and then he'd start saying the most obscene thing he could think of. And the shock wave that went through the audience manifested itself as laughter. And then he felt that he was he succeeded. But as time went on, uh, he became more and more personally involved. After the uh, arrest for the obscenity, he's involved in legal problems and he just becomes more and more out of contact with reality and is losing the audience and the shock value wears off. And in the end, he's not funny. Now, this this was also the trajectory of of Jewish humor over this over this period of time. So uh, you had somebody like Philip Roth, who wrote uh, serious novels, and then he wrote a kind of comic novel called Portnoy's Complaint, which had that shock value to it. And people, and there were there were uh, genuinely funny moments in that book, but then it wore off. You know, it had its effect. It was transgressive. It broke down taboos. And after that, uh, what are you going to what are you going to do for an encore? And so, as a result, Philip Roth became less and less funny, 
and more and more angry uh, at the world that treated him too well, more better than he deserved. Until finally you have a, a book like uh, The Plot Against America, which is pure uh, Jewish paranoid fantasy. And by the way, it's going to be made into, uh, I believe it's HBO. I, I just saw that. You're right. I just saw that headline today. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's HBO. It's one of those, one of those groups. They're making a movie out of it. Uh, uh, and the plot of the movie is basically that uh, Charles Lindbergh, you thought you thought he he was really, you know, involved in flying across the Atlantic in an airplane called the Spirit of St. Louis in the 1920s and being the first man to do that. What he really was interested in was setting up concentration camps in New Jersey <laughs> and rounding up Jews and putting them in concentration camps in New Jersey. Now, you didn't you probably didn't know this, did you? Yeah, I missed that part of history. I'm sorry. You missed that part of Lindbergh. And yeah. I'm every, as a matter of fact, everyone missed it except Philip Roth. And Philip Roth created this paranoid Jewish fantasy and spun it into a novel. And the movie uh, from the trailer I've seen makes it look even worse than the book, as movies can be. So here you have the whole the, the, the trajectory here of comedy. Uh, the Jews using comedy to... Uh, as a battering ram against the the culture that they want to destroy because they always want to destroy the dominant culture where they live because they're always a minority and they're always fearful that if the majority is cohesive, they'll put them in concentration camps or something like that. So that's uh, that, that's the, 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 that trajectory. And it, it, it created the world we live in. It created this absolutely miserable world for the millennials. Well, uh, also, first, uh, Lenny Bruce and his obscenity. That's another example where uh, obscenity became confused with uh, free speech, too, right? Yes. It became kind of a cause celeb for other yes. comedians. And that, it, yeah. As a matter of fact, you can go on. This is uh, to, to <clears throat> get to the heart of the matter here. You can go on YouTube and type in William F. Buckley and Alan Dershowitz. And there is a young... Uh, Alan Dershowitz with his big bushy mus mustache and a big afro, his big Jewish afro. And he's defending Deep Throat on uh, the pornographic film, mm -hmm. and he's defending it on, as, as free speech. Now, okay, that was outrageous in and of itself. That was a subversive moment in American history. He helped break down all of the barriers that led to the pornography addiction of the 20-year-olds. He was the, one of the main enablers of that enslavement of a whole generation. And that's bad enough. But to make a situ the situation worse, you can go to um, type in uh, Alan Dershowitz and uh, hate speech, and there he is as President <laughs> Clinton yes. is signing a bill banning criticism of Jews uh, on any college campus. So he's now a commissar. <laughs> I mean, the hypocrisy yeah. of this man is absolutely stunning. And, and it's not just this man. It's it's the Jews uh, as a group because they were the ones. Uh, Leo Pfeffer said the same thing. When I, in, that, in my book, John Cardinal Crow on the Cultural Revolution, I quote Leo Pfeffer at the beginning of it saying, Jews are in favor of free speech. What? What? Are you kidding me? You mean Jews were in favor of free speech? You mean the same group like the ADL that is the champion of hate speech that's trying to uh, just trying to deplatform anybody 
who they don't like? Well, yeah, they were in favor of free speech as long as they were out of power. And the best way to encourage uh, the, 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 the destruction of the power structure that kept them out, promote pornography as free speech, which they did. And Alan Dershowitz is the prime example. Once they get their hands on the levers of power, then the whole church situation changes. And now you're not allowed to talk about anything. They destroyed any objective criterion about what should be allowed to be said and what should not be allowed to be said. Okay. Obscene means off stage. You know, there are certain things that you should not portray on mm -hmm. the stage. And uh, sexual intercourse is one of them. And that's objective. We all know what it is. We know what a stage is. We know what the act is. And they completely muddied those waters. And now that there's no standards, they come in and imply, imp apply, impose their own standards, which is now uh, uh, any pornography is free speech, but any criticism of the Jews should be banned uh, from all social platforms. And the, um, the proliferation, the normalization of uh, pornography, the pornographic culture that we live in today is largely responsible for the nihilistic kind of wasteland we live in uh, where characters like Arthur Fleck uh, are created or the character or the person you write about in the article, the young lady who um, gets exposed to pornography you know, as a 14-year-old as a just through the internet uh, and also for VHS tapes. And it's so much so that by the time she goes, she takes sex, edu sex education courses, she, she doesn't recognize what she's watching as being particularly... Uh, interesting or, or titillating right. because she's been so uh i guess uh, uh numb desensitized. desensitized to it yeah 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 so so owen benjamin comes along mm -hmm. owen benjamin is a kind of hero to this generation uh he was born in 1980 so he's now 40 years old uh and he starts off uh to be uh, a, uh in film uh, and and a comedian Okay, comic films, he starts to make his way in both. So he starts to get gigs at comedy clubs. He gets parts, uh, small parts in films, Hollywood films. And he's, he's on his way. He's on his way. He's got the career as a handsome guy, big guy, huge guy, as a matter of fact, like six, seven. Looks like a, um, you know, the uh, offensive line of a <laughs> football team. And, uh, but also a very talented guy because he can play the piano and uh, he can write satirical songs, and he does that as part of his stand-up routine. He sits down at the piano and sings a couple of his songs. So he's got everything going for him until he runs up against political correctness. And in this particular instance, it was uh, him criticizing uh, hormone treatment for children to, to change gender. He characterized that as child abuse. And I think you can make a fair case for that. Uh, and I think you should be able to make a fair case for it. But that's not the world we live in. And so he was immediately attacked and dropped. Well, doesn't it say something about the absurdity of our age when something like that, criticism, something like that can be a career killer? Yes, it's, it's a perfect comment on our age and the world we live in, uh, the miserable world and the people who control it. Mm -hmm. And, and and uh, the, as uh, Anne Hendershot said, deviance is constant. You'll never have a society without deviance. And so what used to be taboo is now um, mandatory. And if you don't go along with what's now mandatory, you will be 
tabooed and you will have a curse put upon you and you will be driven from the expelled from the synagogue. And that's precisely the synagogue. This synagogue was known as Hollywood. And uh, he was expelled. And so then he made his way uh, into uh, uh, an Internet figure. He had a large following on YouTube, hundreds of thousands of people on YouTube. And the main reason he did that was because he was able to attack sacred cows. Now, these are real sacred cows. These are bad things that we are being told are good things, you know, like uh, hormone treatments for children <laughs> to block uh, their sexual development. This is a bad thing. And the fact that there are people out there who take it seriously means that those people deserve to be ridiculed. Actually, they deserve much worse, but ridicule at least is a way of dealing uh, rationally with people who propose this type of thing. Well, at that point, he got kicked off of, of YouTube. But, but the, before that, uh, he still has an audience. And who is the audience? Well, it's, it's millennials. It's the people who have the problem with pornography addiction. He addresses this frequently in his, in his show. So I went and he showed up in Hobart, Indiana in the fall, and I went to see his show. Well, he, he, he had caught in wind of your work. I think prior to this, right? That that's the impression. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah there, there, again, it's the it's the millennial co uh, connection. There mm -hmm. was there's a, a, a 20, 29 year old guy here in town who liked both of us and decided why don't we put two and two together? And so he put me in contact, and I did a show, one of Owen Benjamin's show, and it went over well because we're both talking about the same thing. Well, you, in the article you write, and this is a, a good illustration of, of the point you're making here is. Owen Benjamin, when his viewers tell him that the world is coming to an end, he asks them if they are watching pornography, and they invariably admit that they are. Pornography, in other words, is one of the chief engines driving this generation into a sense of despair, and despair is one of the chief engines driving them to violence, which is then exploited in this movie, um, The Joker. Yeah, Yeah. so you see basically two fundamentally different reactions to this generation. You see Owen Benjamin, who's trying to uh, deal with the problem and help them out of it. And you see the Joker, which is trying to drive them further into it, applauding. Uh, in, in other words, you, this is the, the trajectory. Okay, can, we're back now. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, good. You yeah. broke up just when you were talking about uh, pornography. I'm sorry. It's about a, a 90 seconds back. Yeah, I said that basically you have you have two fundamentally different reactions to the plight of this generation, the uh, uh, the Zoomer or millennial generation. You've got Owen Benjamin trying to address the problem, namely pornography, and pull it back from the abyss. And you've got the director of Joker trying to incite violence and push them into the abyss. It's just a, it's a pernicious movie, pernicious movie. The um, Now, with Owen Benjamin, you also contrast it with a couple other comedians well-known, of course, uh, George Carlin and Richard Pryor, George Carlin being a Catholic, a lapsed Catholic, and also Richard Pryor, who, like George Carlin, was kicked out of Catholic school, and how they they were kind of uh, useful to, uh, uh, to, I guess, to the powers that be in breaking down taboos and, you know, I guess, uh, encouraging nervous laughter and going after sacred cows, but they were promoted because uh, they were, uh, they were, uh, useful tools in the uh, in the in the process of destroying uh, the moral order. Yes, yes. I mean, so George Car no one would know George who George Carlin was if he if he hadn't followed uh, in the in the footsteps of Bruce. 
So whether you're, he may have been a Catholic, but he was uh, acting like a Jew. I mean, basically the paradigm of comedy that he adopted was the Jewish paradigm that Lenny Bruce had established. Uh, this, this is uh, common. It's common. So uh, to give you uh, another recent example, uh, this halftime show at the Super Bowl featured two Catholic girls and uh, uh, performance that is uh, aimed at the Catholic Hispanic audience. And, and if you didn't get that, they brought on all these Hispanic girls in white shirts uh, just to make sure you got they got the picture, the picture of who this was intended for. Now, they, they don't really have any say in the matter. Shakira could have come on and said, look, I'm famous. I, I, I have millions of dollars. I've sold millions of records. I'm going to sing Ave Maria at the halftime show. Well, sorry, you don't have the you don't determine what gets performed at the halftime. A guy by the name of Jay-Z does. And Jay-Z's uh, corporation uh, is uh, has has Jews on the board who are the basically the, the people who provide the scenario. The same thing was true of the previous uh, people who ran this, the, the half the halftime show. So the, the program is already there. Either you get with the program, in which case they make you famous, at least for 15 minutes. Or if you object to the program, then you become like Owen Benjamin. You are expelled from the synagogue and then good luck. You can do it on your own, but you're not going to get any help from us. That's that's how this culture reinforces its bad messages to the people who, who take it seriously. In the article... Um yeah, you you take on this this idea of uh, of, uh, of uh, the comedian first as kind of going after or taking on uh, sacred cows, uh, but then once they slay those sacred cows, uh, they become commissars, uh, characters like uh, Sarah Silverman, and how people describe her as you know her 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 comedy, you know again will go after these sacred cows, uh, uh, smash taboos, but now. She's an enforcer of uh, of political correctness, and in a way that her and also feminist comedy, as uh, in the same way that transgressive comedy has destroyed real comedy, feminist comedy, in, uh, which is an extension of Jewish comedy, has has done this, and now the, they're the enforcers of of speech codes and political correctness. Yeah, that's right. So that anybody is in a, you're in a bind, okay? If you want to be a comedian, you have to be able to poke fun at something that is considered a sacred cow. But if you're a feminist, your job is to impose those sacred cows on everyone else. So how do you do that? Well, you don't do it. And so as a result, feminist comedy is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Because as soon as you let on that you're a feminist, we know that you're a complete sourpuss about everything. You know, you've got this monomaniacal view of the world that doesn't explain anything and you're determined to impose it on everyone and the worst aspect is you're not funny it's not funny so sarah silverman for some reason thinks it's funny to say that she would kill jesus christ i, I don't know i don't know what she's thinking and michelle wolf is another jewish lady who thinks that she's funny and and she talks about abortion as if that's funny it's not funny it's not funny it's serious 
and the fact that you, you, you're trying to make it funny is an indication of your troubled conscience. Uh, you did something that everyone knows is wrong. Everyone knows it's wrong, and especially the feminists, because they are plagued by guilt because they did it. And so you're trying to make something wrong right, and you're trying to use comedy as the vehicle, and it's not going to work. It doesn't work. And so uh, as, as, uh, as uh, the famous Hollywood director said, uh, where people, even, even people like uh, Jerry Seinfeld have refused to go on campus now. Now, you think a Jewish comedian would be safe, uh, basically, the political correctness is a Jewish creation, but even he can't stand it. it, it, it and this is the, the breaking point for Owen Benjamin came with campuses. He was invited by the people themselves, the students thought that he was funny, thought he was worth, listen, worth listening to, and so on and so forth. And they invited him, and then the administration came in and canceled the contract. This... This is, it's death for anyone who wants to go into this field. You just can't do it. It's an impossible situation. So you end up with either like Owen Benjamin, you get expelled, but you can still do your comedy, uh, but you're outside of the mainstream, or you stay in the mainstream and what you're saying isn't funny. That's the bind that these people are in. The, um, you make the point, or at least you talk about Aristotle and how comedy has to be within, meet the mean. And uh, the idea that um, the uh, if comedy uh, become you know uh, goes after truly sacred things that it, it's obscene, not funny. The, the, the today's comedians now are either buffoons or commissars. Uh, they'll just they just want to get the laugh or offend somebody. And um, the difference is uh, you know you mentioned that the comedian the wolf female comedian making jokes about abortion because inherently it simply isn't funny. And the only laughter she gets is a nervous laughter from her niche audience that she picks because normal audience, audiences won't laugh at it. And she just thinks they just don't yeah. like it because she's a woman. It just simply isn't funny. But here's an example. I know oh, you mentioned Owen Benjamin, and I was listening to one of his stand-up acts, and he was talking about um, life out in L.A. And he was talking, some lady, some girl comes up to him and goes, I don't know, could, uh, I don't know if I could kill baby Hitler. I go back in time, and I could kill baby Hitler. You know, I don't know if I could do that. And he goes, well, I, I know you've told me you already had two abortions. Uh, so you're definitely capable of killing babies. And they, we definitely know that, you know, that, that those babies weren't Hitler. So you could do it. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so you're, obviously he's talking about something greater as abortion, but it's done in a way that's making a point And therefore it gets genuine laughter. Where just laughing about yeah. killing a baby won't get laughter because it's disgusting, and you know it's it, oh. it, 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 basically what it, it, it's it, there's there's logos in his comedy. That's right, and everyone and, senses and, it. Yeah, and, and Aristotle uh, did uh, did talk about it. Uh, he said it, the the buffoon is someone who laughs at everything, mm -hmm. and the boar on the other side is someone who laughs at nothing. Uh, and uh, the in order to hit the target, his his imagery was. Uh, taken from uh, archery mm -hmm. and basically uh, you could miss the target on either side but you had to be good in order to hit the target go straight down the middle and the straight down the middle is the the golden mean and that's that's logos is that's the logos of comedy not going too far in one extreme or the other 
And uh, that, of course, is lost on the on the, the, the Jewish comedian because he has no sense of logos. And that means you've got no sense of limit. You've got no sense of boundaries. You've got no sense of this is a dividing line between something you can joke about and something you can't joke about. You shouldn't joke about. All of those things are missing. And so they have no logos of comedy. And they, so as a result, comedy gets destroyed. They take it over. They define it as what they do. Uh, the Jewish comedian becomes the paradigm. And then what do you do when it's no longer funny? Well, you wrecked it. Uh, then what? Well, then someone else has to pick up the pieces and then you expel them. So you, whatever you've created, this this uh, this uh, uh, this circumscribed world where you allow people on your media outlets and you have to expel them. So there's a result. Uh, they lose uh, whatever value they have because they're not dealing with anything of value. That's the situation uh, in our culture. That's the, it's not just comedy. It's the entire culture. So you name it. Uh, higher education. Same thing happened there. Uh, the mass media, publishing, all of these things, they've all been taken over by a group of people who determine what is capable of being said and not being said. And it turns out that what they allow you to say isn't worth saying. And what they prohibit you from saying is the only thing worth saying and you can't get into it. And so you're creating an alternative. And as soon as they discover that you have some access to the alternative, like the internet, like Google, like Facebook, then they try and ban you from that. So this is not going to end well. <laughs> this is not going to end well. I can tell because you can't, you can't talk to people like this. Anytime you try and talk to them, uh, they call you names. They call you an anti-Semite. And that's all they can do. And that, as I said before in other shows, leads to violence. Uh, that leads to violence. They know that. And so they start promoting it because they like the violence, uh, because they can bring about a violent reaction, uh, and which they have caused, they themselves have caused. Uh, yeah, it's the, as you write, the, um, the old comics made jokes about real life. The new comics turned life into a joke. Uh, but it, of course, it isn't a joke. Um, you can say it's comedy and tragedy as the Greeks said it, but that, you know, but it's certainly not a joke, um, and the sort of this nihilistic attitude that they want they, that they encourage with with pornography and sort of um, you know it's sort of knocking down um, uh, uh, you know, going after taboos, knocking down legitimate authority, morality. They they don't seem very. I guess it's it's, it's ultimately it's chutzpah here, right? Which is their downfall. There is no, that means there's no chutzpah means you push it as far as it will go. Uh -huh. You don't stop until you bump into a force that is larger and more powerful than you. And at that point, you stop. So there's no internal regulation here. So we had the same. We had this uh, just recently with with Israel when uh, Trump murders Soleimani and precipitates. It looks like we're set up for a world war here. And at this point, the, the, the Jews back down. Benjamin Netanyahu basically said, to, oh, wait a minute, this is just between, this has nothing to do with Israel. Uh, he said this after Hassan Nasrallah said uh, that if you, if uh, the United States attacks Iran, we will attack Israel because we know that Israel is the source of the problem. And Israel, Netanyahu, after 20 years of pushing the United States 
into a war with Iran. Suddenly he had to pull back because he knew that Hassan Nasrallah had the, the firepower to level Haifa. And that was going to be the end of Haifa. And he didn't want that to happen. So he backed down. I mean, it's a classic example of what I'm saying here. No internal sense. There are no borders. He doesn't recognize borders. Again, we have this Jewish phenomena here of promoting illegal immigration. They don't recognize borders. Israel does not recognize borders because it wants to be able to expand wherever it wants to expand. This, over the long haul, will lead to violence because you're constantly transgressing boundaries until you create such a huge reaction that uh, you have to step back. You have to pull back. And then you have to say, well, we never we never intended that. Well, no, you did. You did. And it's the same thing, same thing across the board. You name it. That's the pattern. And it's all summed up in that word chutzpah. In your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, you, you talk about the Jewish takeover culture and you, you, you talk about humor, Jewish humor, um, and about what, ha- what occurred by the 1970s. And this, I guess this coincides with the, the ascendancy of Jewish power. Uh, the two are obviously related. But you write, um, uh, the, there was no reason to agonize about whether being Jewish prevented commentary readers from sharing the American dream because the American dream had become a Jewish shtick anyway. Milton Burrow competed head-to-head with Bishop Fulton Sheen on primetime TV and lost. Fifty years later, Bloom says laconically, shows like Sheen's no longer air on network primetime or even on national cable on the national cable spectrum. They have been replaced by the shticks of numerous funny Jews such as Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Fran Drescher, Richard Lewis, and Jenna Elfman, not to mention the ineffable Howard Stern, whose conquest of cable and radio, of movie theaters and bookstores, marks for better or worse the unequivocal arrival of Jewish funniness, as well as the triumph of Jewish sexual degeneracy. Portnoy, the domestic Jewish savior, obviated the problem of assimilation that plagued his father's generation, American Jews, by conquering the culture, just as Albert Goldman said, said he would. By the 1970s, being Jewish and being American meant one thing and meant one and the same thing, certainly in humor, but in other areas too. The average American had become a, sex, a sexually addicted zombie like Portnoy, content, uh, content to let the offspring of ghetto Jews manage his free time. What the, what the Hollywood Jews were to Bill Clinton, the New York neoconservative Jews became to George W. Bush. The average American could choose Hollywood pornography or neoconservative wars in the Middle East for his nightly entertainment. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, that's in the it Jewish. Still stands up, doesn't it? I wrote that twelve years ago. Yes, um, and it's interesting. You know, the sort of the political, the cultural uh, connection there. Um, the, you know, Chris, you've talked about you know, uh, Portnoy's complaint that was adapted by Woody Allen and Annie Hall, right? Right. He and, took that over, uh, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, the and, whole thing. And, and by, then Erica Jong took it over and feminized it, but in fear of flying. Fear of flying, it's, yeah. It's the same story. Same story. It is uh, uh, Annie Hall is the film version of Portnoy's Complaint. There was a film Portnoy's Complaint, but uh, that's what uh, Woody Allen did with Annie Hall. Yeah, and so you we had so uh, the culture had you know, basically by default had been Judaized, or so. Uh, it's uh, we the the values have been internalized and largely th- through through uh, through humor uh, and and the knocking down of these taboos, the slaying of the sacred cows. But then what happens is just when the Jews are advocating, you know, in the name of free speech, free expression, uh, um, uh, you know, 
going after authority, being skeptical, uh, once they're in power, they become the commissars, the enforcers, and no free speech is tolerated if it's if if it's perceived as criticizing Jews, being anti-Semitic, or even something that uh, gets in the way of uh, what they see as Jewish interests. Yeah, any anything, any criticism of uh, anything Jewish uh, by anyone who is not part of that group uh, will be called anti-Semitism. There's no question. We have no. We have empirical proof of this uh, over the past summer when the ADL did its best uh, to get deplatform everyone who they didn't like. Uh, and so where things stand now, I, these people are not going to go away. They are continuing to say the same thing over and over again. And the tr- the main problem, in my humble opinion, is the Catholic Church here. The fact that the Catholic Church takes these people seriously is the most serious obstacle to any type of social reform. So most recently, we have Pope Francis meeting with uh, some rabbi who is the head of the World Jewish Federation, and they are meeting together to talk about the most burning ethical issue of our day. So guess what the most burning ethical issue of our day is? Anti-Semitism? And you knew, how did you know that? How did you know that? So, <laughs> I, I mean, this you must be a mind reader. I, I, uh, but the point here is, well, why would, why would Catholics, what else could Catholics talk about when they get together with Jews? What else could they possibly talk about? I don't know, how about Jesus Christ? How about Jesus, how about, uh, <laughs> how about, Let's let's talk about why you people killed Jesus Christ. How about that for the next symposium? And the consequences of the fact that your people killed Jesus Christ. Well, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because the Catholic mind is, unfortunately, for the most part, uh, Israeli-occupied territory. It's it's uh, Zionist-occupied territory. So, so we have a situation now. I think they prefer to call it disputed territory. <laughs> I'm the only guy disputing it, though. That's <laughs> the so uh, at the symposium, why don't let's okay, all right, let's have a symposium, but let's talk about Jewish behavior at the symposium and how Jewish behavior contributes to uh, anti-Semitism. Can we talk about that? No, can't talk about well, it. Well, you can talk about the state of American culture and the culture throughout the West in general. And when they write books like Empire of Their Own, uh, how the Jews shaped America through Hollywood, or this book you cite about how Jewish comedy shaped, you know, formed America, modern America. Well, then, okay, let's look at modern America. Let's look at the problems America has. Are you acknowledging some responsibility for the state of culture? Yeah, so in a sense, you've established the I mean, you, these authors... I forget the the author of uh, Gravity Fails, but it's about how Jewish comedy took over the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we both agree on that. But the only difference is as soon as I say there's some bad effect from it, then I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-Semite. Well, we both agreed we took it took over, you know, same with same with yeah. you don't see anything bad about this culture. It's the same with pornography. You talk about this pornography addiction, how it leads people astray, ruins their lives and creates the, the you know, the, the mean streets, if you will. That Arthur Fleck, uh, uh, you know, lives in on and uh, uh, and but then they they see it as great. It's transgressive. It's liberating. But it creates you know the, like the young lady uh, Athena that you write about. 
and how it let you know how it almost destroyed her life and it isn't until she reads uh uh uh, uh Libido Dominandi, uh recommended by Owen Benjamin on his show that she breaks the spell that's right and that's exactly what Owen Benjamin did that I I was there and people one after another came up to me and and, and thanked me for the book and so on and so forth and said it, it did that's exactly what happened they said it broke the spell it's that sometimes it's that simple when you suddenly explain what is really going on people are shocked and they stop doing it I mean, I don't want to uh, minimize the effect of a bad habit like pornography and how difficult that can be to break. But sometimes just the shock of understanding, you mean it's not entertainment? I thought it was entertainment. Uh, Oh, it's that? Well, then I'm not going to do it anymore. And there are people who did that. People have actually done that. And it's not, as your article points out, this isn't entertainment for, it's not adult entertainment. And it's not even restricted to adults. We can talk about the bad effects of that, but it gets to the children. It sexualizes children. And it's as bad as you're giving a child hormone treatment. It is, when a child sees that, it is a form of sexual molestation. And those who produce it are responsible for that. Yeah. Every, Every book that I've read about uh, you know, I'm a I'm a porn addict. I'm a reformed porn addict. Uh, every YouTube video I've seen along these lines all began with the child being exposed to pornography, usually the father's pornography mm-hmm. in some way or other, including the lady that we uh, we talked about in this book, in this in this article that usually triggers has some bad uh, effect almost immediately, even though the child can barely understand what's going on. The, fu- the child finds it uh, uh, strangely attractive and then keeps going back. And before the child know it, uh, you have a full-blown addiction here. So what the, the culpability here, I don't know how you judge culpability in matters like that, but in a sense, it, it's irrelevant wh- when you're talking about addiction. Because addiction is something, even if you're not culpable, it's something you've got to break. You got to get a hold of that thing before you can lead a normal life. But I mean, the point is that it starts with with children, and and all of this stuff is supposed to be uh, uh, kept away from children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all this. You have to. You must be eighteen to enter this site or something like that. Well, that's ridiculous. It comes in a brown bag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah. it's all ridiculous. All these fictions uh, kept in uh, in place by people who want to use it as a form of control. It's that simple. And now. It's- it's unre- unregulated on the airwaves or the, in cyberspace now. Right. And every and, kid's and, and so why are we yeah. talking about, so we're talking about the problems of internet, you know, hate speech. Why are we talking about pornography? Isn't that a form of violence? Uh, people, well, the, the point is that it's all a crooked game here. And it's the Jews who are running this crooked game. They're the ones who created hate speech. They're, uh, as a way of st- uh, stomp, stamping out any criticism of what they do, they are the ones who defended and created pornography. Well, go back to Alan Dershowitz there. Uh, look at the YouTube video. There he is defending it as free speech. And they refuse to take any responsibility for their actions. Well, that's, that's a, a disaster waiting to happen. If you never apologize and never take responsibility... Someone's going to hold you accountable at some point, uh, and probably in a way that you don't like. And as Al, Al Goldstein says, why did why did Al Goldstein produce pornography? Because Jesus 
of course, Christ sucks. Yeah, so there's an ethno-religious hatred there, and it's a he weapon. Said, he, yeah. he, he, he expressed the ethno-religious hatred. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so whenever you say this, it's always going to be, well, who's he? You know, it's like whenever I talk to Chuck Moskowitz, he becomes the Pope and he excommunicates any Jew that I bring up as saying he's not really a Jew. He's a left wing Jew or he's this kind of Jew or that kind of Jew. Well, uh, you know, that's that's not the ADL's criteria. They defend anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they specialize in defending Jewish criminals all the way from uh, Meyer Lansky and Mo Dalitz all the way up to the. Mr. Krishner, uh, the lawyer who got uh, Jeffrey Epstein off the hook. Well, if you point out the American Jewish Committee and the authoritarian personality and how they stake out or they state, uh, you know, declaring ethno ethnic warfare against Christianity, particularly the Catholics, their primary weapon is uh, promoting sexual degeneracy and weakening the family and the father figure. And if you point out the American Jewish Jewish Committee was behind that, they'll they'll say, well, they're not really Jewish. <laughs> no, they're left wing Jews. They're left wing Jews. <laughs> Or they're right-wing Jews, or you know, they're Zionists, and, and Zionists are different. So it's always this shell game, where no matter what, you, what, what shell you point to, the, the P is never under the shell. You know, it's always under another shell. There's another issue here, that because it's not really comedy, but um, I think it's related. And it's sort of the, um, I find it interesting that Owen Benjamin, as a comedian, would get expunged or expelled from the Hollywood synagogue, Pointing out the absurdity and the and the obscenity of of trans transgenderism, transvestitism, and, and you know promoting that with children, and even going as far as to screw them up biologically, you know, with uh, with uh, hormone treatments, he gets expelled for that. Uh, but figures like you know George Carlin and Richard Pryor are promoted uh, largely by Jews because uh, they go after. Uh, Christian values, so and or they go after things that shouldn't be made fun of, like the Catholic faith and its doctrine, its moral doctrine. But if you can ridicule that, you'll, you're 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 off to the races. Your your, your career will, go, will take off. Yeah, he, he gets expelled for pointing out something that, that, like you said, something that deserves ridicule. This is something that deserves ridicule because he's making a moral point. This ridicule is making a moral point. This is the importance of of satire being congruent with morality. Yeah, um, but he gets expelled for that. It, that's an interesting point there. But today, I'm... Yeah, is there anything more ridiculous? Than, I was going to say, is there anything more ridiculous than a man dressing up as a woman? Yeah, this is now this is uh, uh, this is the um, I think this is part. Now this isn't just happening. Is 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 transgenderism is being promoted by oligarchs like the Pritzker family, Pritzker family. Whereas I think Jennifer Pritzker, who is a man. Wait, have you ever seen that that gorgeous chick? Have you ever seen that gorgeous chick, Jennifer Pritzker? Yes. <laughs> but she's actively, or he, I'm sorry, actively promoting uh, transgenderism uh, uh, and um, this absurdism we're subjected to. Um, here's an example of it. There's an article that I read. Now, this is, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, now, again, transgenderism. Uh, all this stuff, all this nonsense is being promoted by oligarchical, oligarchic families like, like, like the Pritzikers. Uh, the, um, this is uh, from National Justice. Eric Stryker wrote this. Um, Mediocre male athletes are taking over women's sports by becoming transgender. New lawsuit claims. Teenage girl 
track and field athletes are suing a Connecticut Association of Schools, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, and other authorities for integrating biological men into women's sports, uh, which has allowed them to dominate. <laughs> According to the legal, legal complaint, two male transgender students have been using their biological advantage to crush their female competitors in statewide track t- tournaments, effectively denying young women as a class the right to fair play, the scholarship opportunity, the scholarship opportunities and awards. Starting in 2018, the two men, Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, have become the only two serious contenders in the CIAC women's track uh, races. These, um, they, they have dominated. Uh, the rules of the NCAA state that a man can... This is the absurdity, okay? The rules of the NCAA state that a man can compete in a woman's sport in women's sports after taking one year of testosterone-suppressing hormones. The lawsuit argues that this does not take into account the drastic differences in lung capacity, bone structure, size, musculature that testosterone induces after puberty that can never be reversed. Now, this is the, the ACLU. The ACLU, we're supposed to take this outfit seriously. The ACLU juggernaut has announced that it plans to fight these little girls in open court. The League of Resources of ACLU's disposal, which holds more than $400 million in assets and spends $120 million a year, turns, turns any case, no matter how compelling, into an attrition-laden trek into a Russian winter. So the ACLU, which we're supposed to say is like sort of a, um, a serious uh, uh, organization dedicated to civil liberties, is making the absurd argument that men can take some hormone treatments claim the women and compete against girls in sports, and this is considered normal. Now we've also been treated, all, all, you know, past few years, uh, uh, endless examples of this absurdity, which I think is a part of humiliation too. Uh, transgendered bathrooms. We have uh, schools now being forced, or at least it was being forced during the Obama administration, to accommodate transgendered students and these things. This absurdism. I guess is is is, an, is I guess is is a uh, inevitable product of this sort of this uh, nihilistic society that we live in that has forgotten natural law that there's nature and purpose to things there's logos to things and it's adopted this sort of Luciferian uh, idea where you can transgress everything and be whatever you want to be but in the process you lose all connection to nature and true identity. Yeah, but it's also uh, an example of. Uh the list of of the cunning of reason, mm-hmm. because what these people are doing then is destroying the notion of gender equality, aren't they? Yes, aren't they? I mean, this was this was a fiction for, uh, from the seventies. You know, women are just like men. Well, no, they're not, and now it's becoming obvious that they're not because, first of all, we've never had. Uh, uh, a uh, an NBA that uh, had women on the best on the men's teams, have we? No, no, you haven't. And you've got this artificial creation called the WNBA, which could never exist if it weren't subsidized by the real NBA, uh, because it's a project of Title IX. It's like the extension of Title IX, with and the fiction there is that. Uh, women are just as strong and fast and powerful as men. Well, they're not, are they? So the transgender crowd has blown up feminism, the fundamental premise of feminism, which is equality. They've blown it up. This is I see God's hand in this, you know. And so now you have uh, Martina Navratilova being demonized and attacked because she's saying women are different than men. You know, there was a, an incident in. Uh, I, I knew a tennis pro 
and he told me the incident about uh, it was either Venus or Serena Williams, who she thought she was so good she could uh, challenge a man uh, and beat a man. So uh, the guy who was ranked 235th <laughs> in the tennis rankings yes. showed up and uh, had breakfast on the court and smoked a cigarette. He kind of stubbed out the cigarette, and then he just crushed uh, Venus Williams. Wasn't even close. He wasn't well, the 54-year-old Bobby Riggs, right? <laughs> no, and, and nobody, I don't think anybody, if you believe that Bobby Riggs uh, really lost that, uh, maybe you believe that, uh, uh, you know, uh, kerosene can melt steel and <laughs> yeah for, i've been told that uh he was a uh, heavily gambler a heavy gambler and uh it was just a you know, obviously a uh, publicity stunt and he threw it yeah he threw it and he bet on himself yeah and he made a lot of money that way that's that's the story i've heard from people who are in the, the tennis business that no one even a 54 year old guy could have had should have had no trouble beating uh, Billy Jean, but then Billy Jean got immortalized by Michael Jackson and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So, so what you're seeing is the, their their own fictions are collapsing before their very eyes. They're destroying themselves. The whole edifice is collapsing, and everybody uh, who is awakening to that fact and starts to talk about it is now getting banned. But at a certain point, you know, the loser lunch table gets there are so many people at the loser lunch table now. It's not the loser lunch table anymore. That that's the transformation that's happening here. Yeah, the uh, the the Zoomers and millennials now who are faced with crushing debt, pornography addiction. Um, uh, you know, what's do, do they respond like the Joker, like a clown with a gun and? create a become a lumpen proletariat or do they go uh uh they seek logos and they uh you know they they, they develop consciousness and uh then perhaps they can be they, they become a political force that that has to be reckoned with but if they follow the joker's uh advice and then you know fortunately you mentioned some of the reviewers of the movies some of the uh one guy said it was it was was it unbridled or uncontrolled white privilege and the other person says, you know, this is a movie that Zoomers can identify with or millennials can identify with. When, you know, like you say in the article, anything Hollywood produces is not there to help you out. So don't take That shouldn't be the takeaway from this film. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And and there are plenty of people. There, what you're saying is what St. Augustine said. There's a city of God and the city of man. Some people respond by picking up a gun and going into some place and actually – uh, a movie theater when it was a Batman movie. Mm -hmm. One of those guys out in Colorado, wasn't it? Aurora, Colorado, yeah. who's exactly that, who's probably the model of this guy uh, in the film. Uh, or they wake up and they, they come to Logos. And a lot of people write to me and say, that's what happened. They are going to church now. They have got baptized. They understand uh, what's, uh, with the way the system works. They understand that there's a way out, a way to gain control of your system and uh, of the uh, uh, of control of your life, and they choose it, and that's the fundamental conflict right now. Who's going to win? Which side is going to win? We know that in the end, Logos will win out. Uh, we don't know how many people will have to die miserable deaths be to, before that happens, but we know ultimately Logos will win out, and that's the topic of Logos rising. <laughs>
So it's an optimistic, mm -hmm. and I think we should end on that optimistic note. Yes. Uh, so the, uh, of course, the article uh, is Logos and Comedy, How Joking About Life Turned Life into a Joke on the February edition of Culture Wars magazine. You can subscribe to the magazine at culturewars.com and also get an update on the uh, publication or the release of Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Well, listen, I want to thank you. Uh, I'll let you go. Uh, I'll post this soon. I'll do. I'll send you the link. Good. Thank Good. you so much, Al then. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.